This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about Jordan Peterson versus the Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover. So I have to be perfectly honest in that I had a different episode planned for this week, but I saw this interaction taking place on Twitter this week and just really felt like I wanted to address it in the moment and... I thought it was a really great opportunity to use the the micro incident to talk about some macro factors and some things that I think are important to share with this audience and to maybe anyone who has found this episode because it mentions Jordan Peterson. Um, this isn't going to be a deep dive on any of his work or uh, his like presence in pop culture or social media. Uh, and I think that I can do an episode on that later on, maybe talking about um, more of his specific work and how he uses media, um, and particularly Jungian analysis, to share his his perspectives. Um, but I wanted to address this specific situation, particularly because Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist, and as someone who is in training to, well, it's basically almost a psychologist and working toward getting a license to do clinical psychology work, uh, I felt that this was important to address from the perspective of the field uh, and not just from a political perspective, because most of the criticism or feedback I've seen about Jordan Peterson comes from the perspective of like politics or other online celebrities or well-known figures. And I think it just cannot be ignored that Jordan Peterson, Dr. Peterson, represents himself as a psychologist and uses his training in clinical psychology to make his points. And I think there's a lot of damage in the reputation that he's built for himself and associating that with the field of clinical psychology. And I know that my platform is (laughs) nowhere at the size of Dr. Peterson's platform, Uh, nor is this ever going to reach him. Uh, But I think that it's important for my listeners and for myself professionally and personally to respond to this specific event and hopefully set up a foundation and through which I can critique and try to understand the type of work that someone like Jordan Peterson is presenting and how the field of psychology, I think, can be responding to that type of work. So that's kind of the, the impetus for this art, this episode. It's not as well researched as some of my other ones because I am responding like very quickly to this event. Um, but there are two articles that I'm going to be discussing that actually Peterson himself brought up. And I think it's important for us to talk about those articles and talk about how we use research correctly. Um And so that that was another motivation for this is he is in this event, used some articles that are quite old uh, and misinterpreted the results. And so I'm going to be going through those articles as well in this episode. So I apologize if this isn't necessarily on brand for this show. I do try to like wait to respond to events like like we did with the, the Oscar slap last episode or I'm done with some of the conservatorship episodes, I do try to wait to get all the information. Um, But this one, I just felt more urgent about responding to it. And I don't know if there's any more information that will be coming out about it. It was honestly, it's just like a dumb Twitter event. Uh, But I just happened to see it on Twitter. And I, I really did feel like it was quite urgent. So next week will be a more typical episode. Uh, That'll be more well researched and uh, more structured. But this one, I think, is important, and I want to be able to kind of speak from the heart and also 
come from a place of responding to specific points. So just to start off, what the heck happened? Why, why, why am I even talking about this? So this week, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover or swimsuit issue was published. And so pictures of the covers were going around. So there's like four covers because there were four models. Um, and, you know, not I, I don't want to talk about like the swimsuit edition of Sports Illustrated too much. I think that there's a perspective in thinking that it might be a little outdated. And it's kind of weird, the fanfare around this particular (laughs) edition of this magazine. Um, But I do understand and acknowledge that Sports Illustrated has been trying to make their covers and their models for this edition more diverse and inclusive of more different types of bodies and including athletes in the edition overall. So, but this is about one specific cover, which featured the model uh, Yumi Nu. So she is the first plus size model to be on the cover of Vogue Japan. She's half Japanese and I believe half Dutch. Uh, And she's actually the niece of DJ Steve Aoki, if you're familiar with his music. Uh, So she's related to that family. And she was the, she is the first um, Asian American cover model for this particular edition of Sports Illustrated. So the swimsuit edition. So it's a pretty big deal, right? It's the first time an Asian American woman has been on the cover. Uh, it's a big deal for her. She was also the first plus size model in Vogue Japan. Like this is just another kind of accolade to add to her resume or her portfolio as a model. Uh, and she's very beautiful. Like they don't pick you to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition if you're not like a super gorgeous lady or person. So you know, no problems, no problems there, right? Like, she got picked. Like, the other people, like, Kim Kardashian also was one of the other covers. So, if you want to talk about controversy, like, there's a more controversial figure, honestly, right there. (laughs) And, like, I had never heard of this model before. I I wasn't familiar with her until I saw the picture going around. So, the incident is that Jordan Peterson, who, again, is a clinical psychologist from Canada, he, quote, tweeted the photo from Sports Illustrated and said, verbatim, said, sorry, not beautiful and no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that so essentially he retweeted a photo of a woman who was chosen to be on the cover of a magazine in a swimsuit and said just just straight out said she's not beautiful and that he 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 won't essentially is saying he can't be forced to think that she's beautiful by this authoritarian tolerance and if you don't know anything about peter's work peterson's work this is a big I don't even know what to say point (laughs) or a big like point of contention that he has is that society is becoming too tolerant and that people are being forced into tolerance by the amorphous left and one of those instances of tolerance is having to believe that certain people are beautiful that may not have been considered beautiful many years ago that's like his thing so that's where he's coming from where he's saying this so he, he then doubles down. So, of course, he's immediately criticized for this on Twitter. And people are quote-tweeting him and ratioing him. If you're familiar with that language on Twitter, like, he's getting a lot of pushback from people who, like, don't like him. And he doubles down and he starts citing articles about attractiveness. And he stated, another, again, another quote. He stated the cover featuring New was a, quote, conscious progressive attempt to manipulate and retool the notion of beauty reliant on the idiot philosophy that such preferences are learned and properly changed by those who know better. But don't let the facts stop you, end quote. Now, I'm going to break that down because another thing that Dr. Peterson does is he, he uses language in a very specific way that can be very confusing and can obfuscate his intentions or the message behind his meaning or behind his words and it can require several readings of his statements to understand what he's trying to say so the first one he's saying i mean obviously sorry not beautiful he's saying he doesn't think this person is beautiful nice of him to apologize before insulting her on the internet and then he's saying he's he's using the phrase authoritarian tolerance to speak about this idea and culture that we have to accept everyone and there will be some sort of crackdown or punishment from I don't know who he's not naming anything it's not the government the government is going to come knock on your door if you don't think this woman is beautiful 
it seems to be the again like i said this amorphous idea of the left that he's created as like the representation of this authoritarian force so just the left whether it's specific people or not he's not naming them he's just saying there's no amount of authoritarian tolerance that will change that basically throwing a tantrum and saying you can't make me think this woman is beautiful i don't think anyone asked him actually i don't think anyone had asked do it doesn't the, the the tweet did not say do you think this woman is beautiful it just was a picture of the cover it just was a picture of the cover with the model's name and then the second part so he's saying a conscious progressive attempt so he's labeling this is where it becomes political so he's labeling the progressives who he has identified as part of a political party so the progressive party you can say that could be leftists that could be democrats he's amorphous in how he's described this in the past on the internet this group of progressive or leftists is also typically amorphous and doesn't necessarily describe a specific political belief, but any type of political belief that is not right wing. So that's a big, <laughs> that's a big spectrum there, right? Is, is who, who's being named in this quote. So conscious, so conscious progressive attempt. So it's a choice by this amorphous progressive leftist movement to manipulate and retool the notion of beauty. So not only is it that this amorphous group wants him to think this specific model, Yumi Nu, is beautiful, it's that the amorphous progressive movement wants to change the very nature of the idea of what we think of beauty. So changing essentially the beauty standards. Now, I don't know about you, but my experience with beauty standards is that it isn't a codified law. <laughs> there isn't a book that you can pull out and it says, here's what you have to do to be beautiful. Beauty standards are created within a society or within a civilization are created implicitly by the way in which certain appearances are either rewarded or punished and highlighted or dismissed by the group as a whole. That's why if you live in a different country, if you're listening to me right now and you don't live in the U.S., you may have an implicit understanding of what is beautiful in your country. And it may be different from what my implicit understanding of what is beautiful is in my own country. And not only do we have this like group experience of beauty standards, but we each bring our own individual things to it, right? Whether it's our upbringing, maybe it's uh, our exposure to certain worlds. Like I have friends who are into different subcultures like different types of music or different types of lifestyles and those come with different like aesthetics which can be beautiful to certain subcultures and not to others right so there's individual factors as well as this kind of like group understanding of what is quote-unquote beautiful so he's saying there's a, a purposeful attempt by this amorphous left to change the beauty standards even though they're not written down anywhere or codified it's it's like an individual fluctuating experience reliant on the idiot philosophy that such preferences are learned and properly changed by those who, who know better so he's saying that this this group that he's identified as the villain believe that preferences for beauty are learned and you like so you are conditioned to see what is beautiful so you see the same let's just say for for women right? You say the same type of woman over and over again, you learn to have that preference. And that if you were to be shown different types of women, you would change your preferences. So he's saying that's what the idiot philosophy is. And I don't, I don't understand why, <laughs> I don't understand why this is even a point that needs to be made, right? Like there's so much that goes into what someone's aesthetic preferences are for the people that they want to surround themselves with. And it can be different for the types of friends that you want to have, the type of partners that you want to have, even things like art and the things in your home that you'd use to decorate. Like beauty encompasses more than just what people look like, right? Beauty can encompass art, literature, the type of media that we consume. You know, you may be the type of person that watches a Quentin Tarantino movie and sees it to be beautiful because of the way in which he directs it. And the way in which he he uses editing and color uh, to tell a story. But the person sitting next to you may not find that beautiful because of the amount of blood in the movie, right? That So it's a subjective experience that, yes, maybe a portion of it is due to what you're exposed to, right? Maybe as a child you were exposed to Quentin Tarantino movies and this other person wasn't. And so that's influenced how you are attracted to the beauty of the film or not attracted to it. So yes, there's a, there's an option to that, but the 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 purpose of having a, a cover 
uh, that represents someone who's not like a rail thin white woman is so that other people can see themselves reflected in pop culture and media. It's not to quote unquote like condition people to think that this is the only thing that's beautiful. It's to allow other people to be represented and yeah, maybe to showcase a diversity of beauty, but having someone be on the cover of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition doesn't mean like, okay, nobody else can be beautiful now. Only people who look like Yumi knew are the only type of beautiful people. Uh, in fact, the, the, the point of the edition, you can argue, is not even about beauty, but it's about other stuff, right? I might argue that it's about sexual gratification. People might argue that it's about highlighting different types of athletes or uh, different types of way in which like athletics can be enjoyed whatever like there are multiple reasons but it's not like here's the beauty bible and (laughs) you have to look like what the cover of sports illustrated looks like otherwise you're not pretty like that that was never a conversation that was being had but because he ends the phrase with don't let the facts stop you it is supposed to be made to seem like this is a, a, a factual statement that he's made but he hasn't. He's just said a bunch of words about an amorphous group that isn't co- that doesn't exist and isn't cohesive. And he's attributing a philosophy and an action to this group that doesn't exist. So after he started tweeting these comments about new, his fans and followers actually started replying in the comments saying that he was like pretty off base with this tweet and expressing their disappointment in his reaction. I saw quite a few myself when I went to go look at the tweet and I even saw some of his followers saying you know I recommend your videos to young people men and women because I want them to learn from you but if this is the way that you're going to talk about women then you know those those potential listeners or followers aren't going to stick around eventually Dr. Peterson threatened to quit Twitter tweeting something about saying his stat he's going to ask his staff to change his password But then he continued to retweet things. In fact, I just checked and he last tweeted something four hours ago. Uh, So he's not off of Twitter. And the stuff that he retweeted right in the aftermath of this, like, blowback was all about, like, pronouns and the trans community and just, like, kind of nasty right-wing articles. And he continues to to tweet. He has not left Twitter. So... I don't know what the purpose of that was to make that declarative statement like, look, you canceled me so hard I had to leave Twitter, but then not leaving. So maybe proving that cancel culture doesn't exist because he didn't get canceled off Twitter. I'm not quite sure. But that, I mean, overall, right, the event was quite small. It was just this exchange. Um, But again, why am I talking about this? Because Peterson is a psychologist. And so when he speaks... He represents the field when he speaks publicly. Now, I looked this up because I wanted to make sure, like, what type of psychologist was he, was he, or is he? Was he just an academic psychologist? Was he seeing patients? And he was both. He did, he did a lot of academic work. He's published quite a few articles, like, I think over 100. He's been cited thousands of times, lots of academic re- work and research. And he also did have a, a practice where he was seeing patients in the community. So he has both experiences with working with people individually and working on the more like academic side. Um, and now he mostly focuses on like speaking and I believe he has a podcast and a YouTube channel. So regardless of what type of psychology or psychological work he did, when he speaks, he represents the field. And I have long disagreed with his positions on the trans community, gender identity in general, and in race. And I think this incident highlight some of the most egregious of his comments and can serve as a gateway to a conversation about his more insidious comments and what that means as a mental health professional. So I'm not going to go into like every example of things that he said in the past that I've disagreed with, but he's taken a pretty hard stance against trans identities or or gender identities that are fluid. Uh, He's taken a pretty hard stance against the idea that this shouldn't be even controversial, but the idea that people of all races are equal. He said so he said things several times that insinuate that white people should be at the top of the hierarchy and that men should be at the top of a hierarchy of society and that society would work better if we just organized this hierarchy where everybody knew their place. I'm paraphrasing, so don't come after me about representing his arguments poorly. I'm not here to take down all of those arguments or even go like break them down. But I am saying that this all comes from a long line of him saying things that are 
I personally think are problematic coming from a psychologist and coming from the mental health field. And the reason why I think they're problematic is that in my training, and, you know, I'm newly trained, or still being trained, <laughs> in my training, it doesn't matter what identity the person has. I mean, it does matter, right? We want to know what the person's identities are that we're working with, whether we're working with them in a clinical capacity or an academic capacity. We want to know about their identities so that we can understand them better, but it doesn't change how we treat them. And getting lost in these conversations about who's right or who's wrong or who, you know, who won the identity politics war or whatever is not beneficial to anybody's mental health. And I actually agree with some of Peterson's ideas that identity politics keep us farther apart from each other. I think that we can draw divisions around our identities that are unhelpful, but rather than just saying, well, you shouldn't care about your identities or, uh, you know, you should just get over it and, uh, fall into place in this hierarchy, I think the solution is for us to learn <laughs> about each other's identities and acknowledge them and acknowledge where the differences are, but also acknowledge where the similarities are and that we can get along with each other and we can learn more about each other and hold space for different identities that maybe we don't understand or we don't have the lived experience of. It, it, like, it, you know, it, it's like he gets the first half right <laughs> and then his solution is like more structure, more hierarchy, more blah, blah, blah. And so comments like this, where he's like highlighting that this person, that this woman on this cover has, I mean, essentially he's pointing out that because she's a plus size model, she can't be beautiful, right? That That's the implicit message he's saying. Now he's very careful to never say that she's, he doesn't, he never says she's fat, right? He's very careful to say that, to not say that. He's just saying she doesn't match beauty standards. But the implied message is her body is not beautiful because it does not look like the bodies that I want to see, which are presumably thin, white, traditional, I don't even like to say traditional, but like thin and white bodies, right? Like thin and white and like femme, high femme presenting, right? He, he, he's, he's telling us that that's what he thinks is beautiful. And that's fine if he thinks that's beautiful. If that's really what Dr. Jordan B. Peterson thinks is beautiful, that is fine. That that's what he's more aesthetically drawn to. But to publicly bully and shame someone for not matching that beauty standard that you have arbitrarily decided is the right one. Right. Again, the beauty standards aren't listed in a book. It's not codified into law. He's chosen that as his beauty standard from his own experiences and background and to arbitrarily choose that and then to publicly bully someone for the way that their body looks because you don't personally find it attractive is insane and is so insensitive and goes against like the principles of mental health care of like client-centered person-first care and research, right? Research should also be person-centered, client-centered, like person first, right? Like my training is that when you enter into the room to work with someone, that person is the expert in themselves, right? I may be the expert in like how to do interventions and like I can teach you CBT things and DBT things all day long, right? Like that, <laughs> that's what I've been going to school for and what I'm trained in. But the person sitting in front of you is the only person in the room who's an expert on what's going on with them. And sure, they may need, may need help expressing themselves or helping to construct a narrative that makes sense for them, for them to be able to navigate through trauma and the world. And, and that's the expertise that the mental health professional offers. But that person is an expert on themselves. And as mental health professionals, we don't impose anything on the person sitting in front of us. We don't impose things like I mean, extreme examples are like conversion therapy, right? Like I don't impose a sexuality on you or a gender identity on you. If you come and sit in front of me for therapy and say, I identify this way, I don't get to say that's wrong. You should identify as a man or you should identify as non-binary. Like, like I can't, I can't say that to you. That's unethical. It's not part of the job. We have a massive evidence base to show that that's harmful to people, that, that there's literally harmful to people to try to force an identity on them. And all the way, that's like, you know, conversion therapy is like an extreme example of that, but all the way down to like small things, right? Like if you come into therapy with me and you want to talk about a relationship problem and it ends up that you want to get a divorce from your spouse. And I personally don't think that divorce is a good idea. 
and I think that you should try to work it out. If you have made up your mind and are clear in your decision that I, you know, you want to divorce your spouse because, you know, you've come to therapy to help clear your thoughts and you've, we've been able to construct a narrative and help you understand what's going on with you and what you need for your life and your solution or for yourself is I need to get a divorce from this person. It's not a healthy relationship anymore. It's just not working out. I, as a therapist, I'm not going to go, no, you're wrong. You need to stay married to this person. Like what? <laughs> There's no point in that. There's no point in that. And it's unethical and it's damaging. It's imposing something on the patient. Now, there are exceptions where the therapist has to pull the kind of therapy card and make decisions, right? Like if you're a danger to yourself, other, other people, we have ethical duties to protect you and to protect the people around you. Okay. So those are, those are exceptions to, I guess what I might call imposition <laughs> on the client. Right. But in general, in most cases, in pretty much every case, we're not imposing anything on other people. And so to publicly represent yourself as a clinical psychologist and then impose beauty standards on people that you've, one, never met, two, aren't willing to engage in a good faith conversation with or learn about their background is so unethical in my, in my perspective. And it's so damaging to people. And, you know, I don't know pers- if this woman Yumi knew if this has impacted her in any way. Um, and I, that's, you know, her journey for her to share if it has. But just from the comments that I was reading on this tweet, it's impacting his audience. His audience is seeing the way that he's talking to this woman that he doesn't know. And they're upset. Like they're feeling like if this is the way you think about someone who's so beautiful, they get to go on the cover of a magazine. Then how would you think about someone like me? Right. Someone like his average audience member who most likely doesn't have a perfect body, right, to his beauty standards, right? Doesn't have the, the real thin, white, high femme body, right? It's just statistically, most of his audience just won't look like that. So you're not only sending a message to this specific person you're targeting, but to your entire audience, your entire platform. He has 5 million subscribers on YouTube and like 2 million followers on Twitter. That's like a lot of people, that's not an insignificant number of people. And so if you're representing yourself as a psychologist to 5 million people and this is the way that you behave publicly, what kind of reputation are you putting out there for psychology, for mental health in general? Are the people in your audience going to be encouraged to seek help and seek treatment if they're worried that their psychologist may be sitting in front of them and thinking, they're not beautiful, they're not attractive enough, like I, I, I can't be bothered to accept this person for who they are. The people who come to us for help, for treatment, are vulnerable. They're putting themselves in the most vulnerable situation a person can be in. Like, in a, a client in therapy is bearing their entire soul, <laughs> like literally, to a person who can't tell you anything about themselves, right? Or who can't tell you much, right? It's a one-way relationship, and the therapist holds all the power. And, and that has to be acknowledged and has to be addressed, I think publicly and in your therapy sessions. And so if, if this is the example that Jordan Peterson is giving as a psychologist, then what are people going to bring with them into the therapy room who, who follow him and, and take his word seriously? And, you know, I know there aren't many like famous psychologists that like are household names, you know, like, sure, we got Freud and maybe you've heard of B.F. Skinner. <laughs> But, you know, like, like psychologists just like aren't pop culture figures in the same way that like other types of, of media figures are. But things are changing, right? Because of social media, like someone like Dr. Peterson can make a, essentially a career out of a, a social media career. He can, he can make a career out of social media. And that has huge ramifications for the field. And so I don't think that it is responsible for someone who's representing themselves as part of this field, as having this title, to then be berating people online and be using like such negative language about people's bodies. And body shaming is wrong and, and, and all the time. <laughs> body, body shaming is not okay. And so I personally am that, I'm not going to engage, I, I saw a lot of this, of engaging in body shaming about Dr. Peterson, of saying that, you know, things about his appearance. And I'm not going to do that. Because I don't think that's appropriate, and I don't think it's the way that you fix this problem. 
And I understand that some people that's like cathartic for them. And that was the reaction that they needed to have and that they needed to show him how hurtful these words were. But as somebody who's coming from the field of psychology of mental health, I'm not going to engage in that back with him because I'm modeling an appropriate way to behave as a, as someone in the field I will not be body shaming him to model an appropriate way to act so body shaming is wrong and I think it's particularly tricky in this situation because of the power and racial dynamics so Dr. Peterson is a white man with a pretty large platform the person he's tweeting about has 10,000 followers on Twitter okay and about 17 thousand followers on spotify as she is a a musician okay so someone with two million followers is coming after someone with ten thousand and there is there's power there peterson has the power because he has more reach so his tweets are going to go farther on the platform than news will and he has a larger audience who may be more swayed to act on his behalf than her audience like i i'm not sure i didn't look into this but it, it's possible in situations like this that the followers of the larger channel go after the target of criticism or the target of the commentary and leave hateful comments about the person that's being talked about. So, and I'm not saying that this happened in this situation, but this is the likelihood because I don't know. But this is the likelihood is that when someone with a bigger platform leverages an attack on someone with a smaller platform, the followers of the larger platform people can go after the small people, right? And they'll, they're more likely to see their comments because they're not getting lost in like 5 million comments, right? There's only, there's only so many if you have a smaller platform. So he, he has power in that way because he, he has a larger uh, uh, platform. He also is a white man targeting an Asian American woman, And there is a history of Asian American women being targeted for their appearance, not matching up to cultural standards. So like, especially in America, like Asian or Asian American women not fitting in with certain beauty standards because of how they look, right? Not fitting into that kind of like, again, that white, thin, very feminine appearance. And there's also the role of the model minority myth which Asian and Asian American people face in America, especially for women, is like expecting these groups to be very submissive and just like accept what's being said about them, right? And so when you leverage a comment like this against someone who is from that culture that could be, that's susceptible to this like model minority myth, you're expecting them to not fight back. Like Peterson is saying, I expect you to not fight back to me. He may not be explicitly saying this or or conscious of that this dynamic but this is what's happening because he doesn't agree with like certain types of understandings about stereotypes and racial dynamics right he he just he will like not acknowledge that or not agree with that so it it may be more implicit for him because he's not aware of it because he's not taking the time to understand it but when a white man says to an asian or asian american woman that you're not beautiful or, or just leverages an attack against them. The expectation is that you don't, the woman does not get to say anything back because you're supposed to be submissive. That's the stereotype. And that's how stereotypes are damaging because now you feel like you have the power to say horrible things about someone and they can't respond because if they respond, then you get to say more horrible things about them. And the expectation is that you just have to sit there and take it, that this is just the way that the world works. That's disgusting. That's disgusting and horrible. And a horrible off-balance power dynamic that Peterson is exploiting. And I don't think it matters if he thinks (laughs) that that's real or not. It is what's happening. And we have evidence of this. We have research that demonstrates this, like historical precedent that demonstrates this. This isn't just a case of a man on the internet saying rude things about a woman, right? We know that happens every day. But there's extra elements to this because of the size of his platform, because of his racial identity, and the way in which he's weaponizing it against a woman of a different racial identity. So <laughs> now that I've been yelling for 30 minutes, this like just this really aggravated me. And that's why I wanted to talk about it, because I think that this is so wrong. And I'm like upset at the, the reputation damage that psychology takes from actions like this. So the last thing that I want to do in this episode is address the two articles that he was tweeting at people to be like, there's science for why I can say this woman is ugly. 
And I want to go through them real briefly and just kind of talk about like why him tweeting these are, first of all, irrelevant. And second of all, bad attempts to use research to bludgeon critiques. And we've talked about this on the show many times. If you go back and listen to some of the older episodes where I focus specifically on research articles, especially the cognitive bias ones, I have taught, <laughs> I've taught you guys how to recognize things in research and read and have like a little bit of science literacy, right? Just, just a little bit, just enough to get by. And we've talked about the different things that are red flags in articles and, you know, like that information is out there. Right. And uh, as always, read the articles yourself. I will source them on the website. But the one thing that's bad about this research that he used is that it's so old. <laughs> it is so old. <laughs> like one of them is from, uh, let's see, 1998. So not even this millennium. <laughs> and the other one is from 2009, which may not seem super long ago, but like standards in the field is that if you're wanting to talk about current research you're doing no more than five years ago okay so like 10 years ago maybe we can get away with that but you're definitely not going more than 10 and you want to stick within the last five years so citing these two articles it's like okay either that tells us a a few things either peterson himself is not up to date on research about attractiveness which is interesting considering that seems to be his passion right now Two, there aren't that many articles about attractiveness being published since 2009 because, I don't know, maybe we've given up on it. (laughs) Not given up on it, but just like maybe that's not as important as other factors and there's other things that need to be researched. Or three, there are articles about attractiveness that have been published since 2009 and they contradict the point he was trying to make. So you had to cherry pick two articles, one from the 90s, one from the early 2000s before, you know, before I had graduated high school, he's using these articles to prove his point that a woman who was already chosen to be a model on Sports Illustrated is not beautiful. So let's talk about these articles. The first one is called Newborn Infants Prefer Attractive Faces. Okay, this is from 1998. It's in the journal Infant Behavior and Development, and it's by Slater and et al., a big team. So I can't find the whole article. That's the first problem. I can only find the abstract this article is very old. I have tried all my databases that I have access to and I can't find the whole article. So this is only based on the abstract, which I'm assuming is also what Peterson was doing unless he has this article like printed out somewhere or memorized because this article isn't readily available online through some of the databases. So the abstract just basically says that like, okay, there was previous research, previous experiments that have found that infants that are two months or older, so two months two months out the womb, two months in the world or older, will spend more time looking at quote unquote attractive faces than those, than faces that are judged to be unattractive. So these experiments have been, I've read about some of these experiments before because one of the only things you can do with infants, especially when they're that little, is just kind of measure where their eyes go because they can't move their heads or much of their body in any meaningful way. <laughs> Maybe they accidentally move around, uh, but they, they don't have much motor control. So the way that you can kind of understand how they're experiencing the world is through looking where their eyes go. So tracking their vision. And so in some experiments they've done, they show an att- uh, a face has been rated attractive and a face has been rated unattractive. And they see that the baby will spend more time looking at the face that's rated attractive. Okay. So here's our first red flag, right? Rated attractive by adults by adults in 1998 do you think beauty standards maybe have changed a little bit in the last i don't know 30 years potentially (laughs) potentially the beauty standards have changed so this research would be considered not necessarily outdated but just not up to date not one-to-one applicable to our world now where beauty standards may have shifted in some ways most likely due to the birth of the internet (laughs) not just the birth of the internet but like the widely accessible nature of the internet where now people can see a lot more faces and a lot more types of people and more interactions with people right so we may have a a more expansive idea of beauty or people are more are represented more right so things have changed right so this specific experiment looked at how soon after birth is this so-called attractiveness effect present so this these authors said okay past research has shown that babies look at attractive faces for longer how fresh can we get these babies from birth and try this thing so they had babies in the age range of 14 to 151 hours from birth so 14 hours old to 
about six days old, so less than a day to six days old, looking at faces. And they found in these groups, the fresh, super fresh, new to this world infants spent more time looking at the attractive faces. Now, the authors don't have a conclusive interpretation of this, and they say either there's an innate mechanism, so there's a um, an internal mechanism that infants have that makes them respond to faces, certain types of faces, or that babies learn about faces very quickly after birth. Because they've never seen a face before, right? If you're 14 hours old, <laughs> maybe you've seen like three faces, right? <laughs> like your parents' faces and like the nurses, right? You've seen not that many faces. So it could be that babies are just learning faster and getting intrins- like rewarded or understanding like which face to look at faster. Not sure. Can't read the whole article. Also don't know how it's relevant to this discussion about a grown woman on the cover of Sports Illustrated. She's not an infant, so (laughs) we don't need to measure her eyes and where she looks at attractiveness. Uh, And I'm assuming that everyone on Twitter is also not an infant. So again, it's irrelevant. It's outdated. And it's not applicable to this situation. But Peterson is using it to bludgeon his criticism or his... uh, critics by saying well research has proved that even babies know it's attractive and and again because we no one can access this article we don't know what the faces are that were judged to be attractive maybe they all look like yumi knew <laughs> maybe i just think it's like absolutely insane to think that this one article proves your point so you can continue to cyber bully someone anyway so that's the that's the 1999 1998 article about newborn infants they just spend more time looking at attractive faces but that doesn't give us any information about if that defines what is attractive and what is it about the faces that the babies prefer they just seem to be looking at these faces for longer the second article which is from 2009 is called physical attractiveness and reproductive success in humans evidence from the late 20th century united states and this is by marcus jokella it was published in 2009 in the Evolution of Human Behavior uh, journal. And long story short, this was an experiment where uh, they took pictures from people in the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study, which was a lot of people. It was like over a thousand people were in the study who had been, this is inf- important, who had been born between 1937 and 1940. So these are uh, the greatest, like, what is it greatest generation silent generation they're pre-baby boomers essentially okay so the people who were born then in this longitudinal study so if this article was published in 2009 these people are at their youngest uh 69 okay so these are older people that were looking at so the the study they were this is a data set that had already been being followed around so this author took uh photos of this study uh, yearbook photos from these people and um, collected in some information from them about um, how many children they had had, how up to 10, how many marriages they had had, their parental socioeconomic status, and which included things like the average parental income in 1957, and then their education level. And then to rate the attractiveness of the photos, the author had people in believe it's the lab sit down and code like who do they think was attractive and they end up having like 10 groups of attractiveness so then they ran a bunch of statistics <laughs> using this information and they were looking to see if the photos of the women or men had been rated as more attractive did they have more children and essentially what this study found for women i'm just going to focus on women because he's using this to talk about a woman on the internet what they found for women is that the women in the attractive and very attractive groups they had statistically significantly more children than the um moderate or not attractive women so the the higher rated attractiveness women had more children however when they adjusted for how long the people had been married for how long the women had been married marital status accounted for more of the fertility especially for more attractive women so that one of the percentages went down to zero percent 
So it wasn't the attractiveness necessarily. It might have been a little bit of the attractiveness, but it was the marital status was related to fertility. And I wonder why. Because if you were born in 1937 and you were married for a long time, you were more likely to probably keep trying to have children because that's what society told you you had to do, especially as a woman. (laughs) So let's see. You're born in 1937. You probably come to like an age where you'd be married in 1957, right? So like 20 years old. That's like, what, peak marriage time for back in the day. So 1957, you get married and you stay married for like 30 years, right? Till 1987. The odds of you having more children between 1957 and 1987 are pretty high, right? Of you having multiple children. Because what was different at the time? One, women were more likely to stay home because we we just hadn't gotten there yet. I mean, that that those t- women wouldn't even have been able to have credit cards on their own until the 1970s so really most of their lives they couldn't have credit cards on their own that was a real thing that happened in this country uh you, you, you couldn't live on your own right or and you couldn't really work right women were mostly at home especially if they had children especially if you were married right you were going to be at home i'm talking generally here right I'm, I'm not talking about every case but in general more likely to be at home less likely to be independent and more likely to be told that your role was to raise children so you were staying home to specifically raise children. So what has changed now? So if we were to do this again with a cohort of people who were born in like 1987, things that have changed would be the expectations for women had changed. You can be a single mother or a single father. You can get a credit card as a single woman. You don't have to have children right away. You can push off the age of marriage and the age of having children or even deciding maybe not to have children. And so the data would look different if you did it with a different cohort because the standards around having children and marriage would change. And so if marital status is more likely to predict fertility or like reproductive success, then it has nothing to do with being attractive. <laughs> it's just that if you're married for longer, you're more likely to have more children because you have a steady partner. And especially at the time, the assumption was that if you were married, you're going to have children. So I don't even understand what this article is even about because in the article itself, it says marital status accounts for part of the higher fertility of more attractive women. It's the marital status. (laughs) I don't know what he's talking about. Does he know if this woman is married or not? It doesn't matter because it's not about like an attractiveness also isn't about just like how many children you can have. Like, whatever this was probably an interesting study and based on the fact that it was in the evolution of human behavior journal like probably relevant to the people that are interested in that field but it has nothing to do with a woman on a cover of sports illustrator that you're tweeting about in 2022 i'm just absolutely baffled that he's using this and so the one good thing we can get out of this of this situation is that this is a bad example of how to use research to win an argument you can't just pick an article because you typed in a google scholar attractiveness you got to read the whole article. I mean, for the one the one article, I only had to read the abstract. <laughs> and I could see how it was irrelevant. So that's I think this is my takeaway from this episode, right? I, I don't care if you engage with Dr. Peterson's work and you follow him and you, you get help from him, right? I, I've heard testimony from people online and I've seen that there are some people who seem to benefit from his method of like advice giving or like the content that he, he publishes. But my, my takeaway, my like plead <laughs> for you is that if you engage with his material or anyone like him who is representing themselves as part of the psychology field, including me, right? <laughs> Check the sources. Look to see how they're using this information. Are they interpreting the articles in good faith, similar to how the authors maybe presented the data or, you know, using the data available? Are they... And are they picking articles that are relevant or are they just like searching keywords and pulling the first thing that shows up on Google Scholar? And you can check that by doing the same thing, searching Google Scholar with those keywords and seeing what pops up. So my takeaway is like just once again, especially like I've talked about with the conspiratorial thinking episodes of like slow down, take a second to look at the information presented and don't just believe the person telling you what their summary of the article is. And if you are engaging with someone who's frequently using outdated, like irrelevant research to bash against critics and try to win arguments, then that may not be a person that is good to engage with all the time, right? They may not be engaging in like what we would call good faith arguments, and they're not using the research in the way that's intended. 
And so I, I just am going to, I'm going to wrap this up here, but I just want to reiterate once again, like Jordan Peterson is representing the field of psychology, specifically clinical psychology. And if he's going to engage in a way like this online, and I think there needs to be consequences or call out of this behavior and not just call out from a political perspective or from like a, you know, just like cultural discourse, but from a psychological mental health perspective. And there has to be pushback. And, I, you know, I, I, I know I'm not the only one doing this. And so I encourage you to seek out other people that push back against this kind of stuff. But I feel very passionately about this because this is the field that I care about, the field that I'm going into for like the rest of my life. And the, the purpose of my show ultimately is to help people become more psychologically minded, right? To realize that how psychology is around us all the time. And if someone like Dr. Jordan Peterson is using psychology in a very damaging way, then that does not help people to find refuge or solace in mental health care. It will drive people away from mental health care, which is the last thing that anyone in the field wants to see. And so I'm just here to offer up kind of a counterbalance and say that what he did was wrong, that engaging with people like this is counterintuitive to the way that the field is set up and the mission of the field, and that I always caution you to take a second glance at articles that are being thrown at you for proof and, you know, check your own sources. Right, take the time, slow it down, and see what the person is really saying to you. And so, with that, I'm going to end my rant <laughs> about Jordan Peterson. Um, maybe in the future, I'll do a more in-depth uh, episode about kind of like his background and his work because I do want to also engage in good faith with his content and with some of the stuff that he's published, uh, while also being careful to lay out my criticism, my critique. Um, so that, that may be an episode I do in the future, but I promise that the next week's episode will be less, uh, passionate. <laughs> well, it'll still be passionate. I'm passionate about the show. Um, but it'll be more structured and more about a piece of media that I'm really excited to talk about. Um, so thank you for sticking with me through the end. Um, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.